Our website is sightandsoundcare.org. Sight and the and is A-N-D, so sightandsoundcare.org. We're also on Facebook under Sight and Sound Care and Instagram as well. And you can see things like my uh, Tom Petty letter. You can see the pictures from the first time I saw him in 1979 on Facebook on Tom Petty Nation as well. But if you go to sightandsoundcare.org and you want to make a donation to help people get free health care, I will just mention no salaries, no income, 100% of the funds go to buying glasses glasses and providing vision care for uh, those people we appreciate and love so much. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Um, you're joining me, Kevin Brown, for another episode of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I wanted to wish you a happy new year, which will be happening in a couple of days as this releases. Um, if you're going to be enjoying some festive drinks and libations, please make sure that you plan a safe ride home. Um, to finish off my guest ember series, I wanted to save my chat with Mark Lindsay until last. As well as being a super fan and a veteran of more than 40 Tom Petty concerts in his life, Mark also runs the amazing Sight and Sound Care program, which provides free vision care to musicians and people in the music industry across the US. Um, a statistic on his website that blew my mind was that 76% of music professionals in the US have no access at all to group benefits. So to be able to step in and provide essential vision care in the way that Mark and his team does is so incredibly important and life-changing. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Mark Lindsay. It's always nice to start with, what's your background? Where did you grow up? What was music yeah. like in your house? What's your sort of exposure to music? What's your background? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you even had me on. because, As we mentioned, I'm the first, I guess, just pure fan, no musical talent. There'll be no talks of key progression or chord changes <laughs> or any of that with me. It's all layman, just a true fanatic. Yeah. But I feel like I've got the the resume to to talk about them as from a true fanatic level as well. So I grew up in a military family. Uh, my mom is Puerto Rican and my father was a sailor from the South. So Tom and I have a lot of similarities of uh, being born in Florida. I was born in Key West. He, of course, was born in Gainesville. We both moved to California. But being a military kid, I grew up all over the place. I moved every probably two and a half years yeah. uh, around the world. I lived in Scotland, Florida, Hawaii, San Diego, where I mainly grew up. And, you know, my influences were, were crazy. We've got my mom on the Puerto Rican side with everything from flamenco from Spain to Celia Cruz, salsa music to my father's Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash background. So you want to talk eclectic, I would be at a Johnny Cash show and then I would be at a flamenco show with my family. And it, it was and my first show was, was Johnny Cash uh, in the early 70s as well from my dad. So that was your first show was Johnny yeah, Cash. My first oh, show, my Johnny God. Cash. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was during that time period, uh, it was in San Diego where I, like I said, I mainly grew up and he had not too long ago had that big arrest at the border where we was bringing back a yeah. trunk full of speed, <laughs> but it was still a fantastic show and just, you know, live music when you're that age, it was like, wow, this, this guy's, and at a fair, it wasn't like it was the peak. He was playing an arena. It yeah. was, it was the fair as well. So, uh, regardless, I was living in uh, Hawaii for a while, again, being a kid who moves every two and a half years, my dad was in the submarine service. Um, so we, like I said, we lived in Scotland and it was on a project there working with their nuclear weapons and nuclear submarines mm. uh, in a little town called Danoon on the west coast of Scotland. Absolutely. So we, lived, we lived there for a while, but then I went to Hawaii and I came in mid high school. And as you can imagine, uh, not the greatest time to jump into uh, school with, with a bunch of people and with only a few white kids in the school. Yeah. Um, and so I was the Howley at the school there. So it kind of drives you to to find music as a uh, respite from what's going on in your life. So I got into music and sports. And at that year, Tom Petty released Damn the Torpedoes. And boom, it was all <laughs> over. Uh, I, I have my wife and I joke about since then, I've either paid for Tom's Jaguar or that house in Malibu with all the money and time I've spent going to shows, buying merch, <laughs> all that kind of stuff as well. But, you know, you remember the content of that album. You've got um, Don't Do Me Like That, Refugee. I mean, it just sunk in with me. And it was like I said, I, I was done. Um, and I went on to go see him almost 40 times after that between the last tour and that first wow. time I saw him in 1980 uh, in Honolulu as well. And you were talking about this earlier in, in a podcast, and that was a ridiculously high energy level show that people yeah. don't know. You have to remember the marketplace at that time. I, that same year, I probably saw The Police, 
The Knack, The Clash, all these <laughs> bands that were still that punk thing that he was for some ridiculous reason in the media thrown in with. Yeah. I mean, I saw venues with him where he would be with Modern English, uh, Bow Wow Wow, Banana Rama, and he'd be the headliner. You're yeah. like, what in the world kind of eclectic mess is this? And then he'd have his straightforward rock and roll, right? Which, you know, always resonates as well. So yeah, yeah I saw him a bazillion times, uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned, but that Damn the Torpedoes tour just cooked me and I, I was done. Uh, there was nothing else that, that really mattered. And I became a deadhead for, for Tom Petty, basically. Well, that, I mean, side one of Damn, Damn the Torpedoes, Refugee, yeah. Here Comes My Girl, yeah. Even the Losers, <laughs> Shadow, of a, Shadow of a Doubt, Century City. I mean, <laughs> right. that just blows your mind. I mean, to, and that was Iovine, right? I mean, Iovine wanted all the hits up front. Yes. He wasn't interested in albums. He was interested in hits. Yes. So he loads everything on side one. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you come off the back of the debut, obviously it has some great tracks on it. Yeah. It's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a mishmash of an album. Um, You're going to get it is a little bit, again, it's a bit sort of a bit of a mess here and there. Yeah. But this one. Right. I mean, I, I must have been sort of, it just seared itself onto the American consciousness, like in a way that, Probably doesn't happen for for in, in England, right? Because there's such an American band, yes. and not in that sort of you know overtly MAGA kind of thing. It's not that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. but it's but it's there's a very American thing to it. Yeah. Um, so when that came out, then so damn the torpedoes comes out. Do you, did you have like a cohort of friends who also got into that, or was it your thing? Yes, no, no, no. It was definitely. I mean, the album was ubiquitous on the airwaves of rock and roll radio. It was. You know, how can they play it any more often? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it went crazy. And then, of course, he follows up with a bunch of other great albums of from Jimmy. Uh, and it just continues on from there. But no, it was definitely throughout the culture and the media. And I wasn't alone. It just obviously resonated with me personally at that time. Yeah, it's the right sound at the right time. And yes. it's that thing, too, I've talked lots on the podcast about is that album really did. I'm talking to musicians and producers. It changed the way that rock and roll sounded, really. Because it, it was the end, you know, it was kind of the end of the seventies era of drums, right? And it's this new thing now where Iovine got that drum sound that everyone copied from then on. Even though Stan obviously tore his hair out and hated it, but you know, but look, <laughs> there's what a mini, there's actually yeah. a mini documentary on just the making of that album, and that's a big part of it. The whole Stan Lynch thing about what was yeah. he on, what was he not on, and Jim, and again, what was the number of takes on Refugee alone? Oh, it's up in the almost the hundreds, I think, right? It was yeah. I, yeah, I think it, sixty it, or seventy. Ben Mon said, "Yeah." Well, that's the one that Mike even said. That's the only time he's ever left the studio, right? He said because I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I had to get out of there, and it's you know. So if Mike Campbell's getting pushed <laughs> to the audience, the, the, the easygoing Mike Campbell's like, okay, I see. But I will say, thank you, smashing success. They nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and set the template, right? I mean, I, I, I talk about this lots too. Where Iovine takes this band, who really, you know, the first two records, Denny Cordell produced most of the first album and then Noah Shark and Tom and Denny kind of coming in and out. So they were kind of left to their own devices more or less. Yeah. Iovine comes in and he's a taskmaster and he teaches them how to record. So right. they get studio craft now, which is a totally different thing from performance. And you think about those three albums, you can see the progression by the time they get to long after dark. And I think that sometimes that's maybe where Tom's criticism of it comes from or disdain for it comes from where they were just, they were just, they could just do that in their sleep. Once yeah. they get to that stage, they know how to make a record with Jimmy Iovine. They know how to write. They know how to arrange. I mean, still, a, I love that record. I think it's massively un unheralded. Yeah. But the, you can see where the, it's like, okay, for an artist like Tom, I think I need to some, do something different now. I could keep yeah. making records with Jimmy. They'd still go to the top of the charts, but I think I need something else. The, the other part about that, Kevin, is that period was the record companies burned these guys out. It was tour, record, tour, record. Yeah. What are you doing? You can't stay in Los Angeles, get yeah. back on the road. And you see the, the history, and it's Australia, Japan, like I said, Hawaii. <laughs> that's that's an ass kicker on, on people. And I know one of the early things Tom said was that, you know, he goes, we're just a bunch of guys from Gainesville, which, by the way, we can get into the whole thing of how in the world did these guys get this close together and become... How do you get that many good guys in one band? It's that's a ridiculous, but it's another conversation for a, another time. Is he said, listen, we're just kind of a bunch of knuckleheads. Somebody has to take over the leadership here and run this band, or we're not going to be anything. And you can see he was a guy who made the phone calls, who organized things, did yeah. the trip to LA, just got it going and said, It's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And it looks like the rest of the band said, Great, <laughs> you do the work. And he was the one motivated as well. Well, and it's that part of, you know, when you listen to uh, read uh, Warren Zane's biography, which I'm rereading for the umpteenth time he, he said there was a, a point at which he realized that he just needed to start taking this seriously 
And just like you said, it was a little bit of luck that he found a bunch of musicians who are even in mud crutch, right? They just up sticks yeah. and left. Absolutely. But I love that, you know, that just what, what fortune, what good luck to sort of stumble across Mike Campbell playing guitar in, in right. uh, Randall Marcy's bedroom in uh, the farm, you know, and saying, well, bring him out. And he plays Johnny Be Good. And that's, well, there you go. You're, you're in my band now. I mean, <laughs> those are just, but I, I said to, I was talking to someone about this. I think the thing with Tom is, and it's the same thing that all successful people have in life. You need a bit of luck, no matter what you do, but it's recognizing when that luck comes along and grabbing hold of it and not letting go and knowing how to use it. And Tom was, I, I think, unparalleled at doing yeah, that. I, I think another piece of that is the, I don't have any other options, right? I used to work in a graveyard. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going back there. Or, you know, as my dad, who was from Florida, also said, he goes, listen, if I wouldn't have joined the Navy, he goes, I'd be talking about transmissions on the porch still. Yeah. That was the yeah. out, right? You have no other options. And that drives you as well as timing, luck, and an incredible amount of talent. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just stepping back a little bit, though. So you're, like you said, you're not a musician. No. Um, what do you do? What's what's your background? Well, so uh, I'm in the optical business now. Uh, I've been in it for about 20 years. And uh, I think we've kind of hinted it on online before. I also run a nonprofit uh, called Sight and Sound. And if anybody wants to check us out, we're at sightandsound.org. And what we do is we provide free vision care to musicians, uh, anywhere in the world. We've done Canada and the U.S. mainly, but we're, we're trying to expand. So about uh, 10 years ago, my wife and I were volunteering at a, um, a an event called Folk Alliance, where about 3,000 musicians get together in Kansas City. And some are professionals, some are amateurs, but it's a huge convention. And I volunteered just to help as a, as a lover of music and a fan of music. I volunteered. They put me at the information booth, and while we were there, I noticed everybody was coming up. The musicians are, can you tell me where the free dental care is? Can you tell me where the free hearing aids are? Can you tell me where the blood test is? Where's the physical? And being a guy in the optical business, I said, I haven't heard anybody ask about where do I get glasses and an exam and that kind of stuff. So yeah. I said, oh, this is going to make me look good to these guys. I'm going to go find out who's doing this and then come back and bring them, right? And I'll, I'll volunteer with them as well. And so we did a bunch of research and there's nobody doing it in the United States. There are plenty of regional groups uh, like Music Cares with the Grammys, which we partner with, um, that provide health care. But as you know, in the U.S., uh, health care, these musicians are buying strings and gas to get to the next gig. They're not buying health care, right? Yeah. It's not really available or affordable. So we set it up. We came back and we did 200 exams for people and gave out glasses to hundreds that very first year. And I went, wow, this this is a true need. So we've been doing it for 10 years. We do thousands of exams every year, all for free. We provide glasses. We provide further medical care. If it's something we can't do. They can get custom prescription glasses, sunglasses, readers, all the basics at no cost. And we have a program whereby um, if they have to get a custom pair of glasses, which we can't do on site, as you can imagine, there are literally 40 million combinations of eye <laughs> needs as well. So we're, we're not, we don't have everything on hand. It's like a mobile mash clinic, if you will, where we're just <laughs> doing the basics, right? So uh, they can get a certificate and we have a partnership with an 1100 uh, door chain so they can go get a ex proper medical exam and a pair of glasses custom made for them for free. And one of the great things is if they're got if they're on the road, they can get their exam in Houston and have the glasses delivered in Austin, all for free as wow. well. So we do that at uh, it's the side hustle, but there's no money involved and no gain. It's a nonprofit 501c3. Um, so we do that when we can around the U.S. And when I eventually retire, it's uh, something we hopefully can permanently do. And we're trying to get franchises of it getting out because. The demand is incredible. And it's really a way a, a person who doesn't have any musical talent can kind of give back. And I always say it's kind of an excuse to get backstage and be a little closer to the music when you don't have any talent. <laughs> it's a hustle. <laughs> I was looking, because on your website too, I think there's something that people forget about too, is that, you know, you said over 40% of independent artists have no health care. Yeah. But it's 76% of music professionals. Right. So that's not just musicians, because to put on a show yeah. takes roadies and lighting techs and bookers and caterers and all kinds of people who are in this industry who also get marginalized because of, you know, obviously if you don't have free healthcare down there, then yeah. that's a problem. So I think that being able to sort of get those people not having to worry too much about that, then the creative arts can sort of get a, a new yes. breath of life. So I think what you're doing is it's insanely cool. Um, You, you must I mean, it's, it, you know, I take it. It's very rewarding and it's very selfish because we get to all these great places. You'd yeah. be surprised. I've got eight time Grammy Award winners who've been in to get exams and free glasses, which yeah. kind of surprises people. They think everybody's a millionaire. But with Spotify now, if they're not touring, they're not making money. And 
you know, buying CDs is only, again, it's show to show for a lot of these folks. I think people would be very surprised. Uh, the other part about it is we get them in and uh, sometimes we come in and somebody, we've got notes back from people going, you saved my vision. I was yeah. going to lose my eyesight. I didn't know because uh, I'll get on my soapbox a little bit here for the optical industry. But um, the um, the thing is when uh, a basic eye exam, which can take 20 minutes, can detect over 200 different diseases the eyes to the soul, that old cliche, right? Diabetes, high blood pressure, yep. people aren't keratoconus, all these basic things can all be seen from an eye exam and then we can send them on to get proper help somewhere else. So the stories are incredible. It's incredibly rewarding and the feedback and the thanks we get from people are, it's crazy. We get tons of notes coming in about thank you and, you know, but we do partner again because it's very regional. There's Smash in Seattle, there's Ham in Austin, there's the Grammys out of Los Angeles, but it's fragmented. As much as we love and appreciate our artists, they're not being taken care of. And this is yeah. kind of a small section that we can kind of give back to as well. Here's a question for you then on the professional side. Yeah. And I've wondered this often myself. So in Canada, we do have you know yes. universal healthcare, and I grew up in England where also where it kind of came from. But Eye care still isn't, it's not considered like glasses and lenses. Why is eye care, why isn't being able to see not a basic human right? That baffles me. I agree with you. And the other part about it is, here's my other one. I always say, I go, everybody pretty much has dental care. But if I were to come to you and ask you, I go, hey, um, I'm going to remove your eyes or I'm going to remove your teeth. What's your, <laughs> what's your preference? We make tons of fake teeth. We have dentures. We have yeah. all kinds of things to help dental. We have no replacements for the eyes but it's second tier focus. And you would always answer your eyes, right? I mean, because yeah. plenty of people have dentures. It's it's very common. So a lot of it is the industry itself. It kind of battles optometrists, ophthalmologists, and it's more of a business thing. And the insurance companies don't make as much money from it as they do from other procedures. So okay. it's, it's one of those. It's a business thing, much like why don't we have universal care in the US? It's probably a political thing more than it is uh, a, you know, a thing about being able to provide and take care of people. But again, we love these people so much. Yeah. We're moved by what they do and we don't take care of them. So what's the, what does the funding come from then for that? Because obviously there's a, that's a huge expense because, you know, glasses, lenses, yes. your, your time for people to go and, and work that. What is that? What does the money for that come from? I'm just We do curious. a once a year fundraiser where we have musicians volunteer and we sell tickets and have raffles. But I got to tell you, we're only probably doing four or five events a year and we get requests for over two dozen a year to come and do this. So we're only filling the events we can fill and fund as well. We do get occasionally some small grants. But a lot of it is, quite frankly, funded by my wife and I, uh, just covering the expenses for for all the artists. Well, I mean, look, okay, where can people donate? They can go let's, to let's, sight and, let's... they can go to sight and and it's the full word and sight and sound um, care .org as well, and and make a donation. We are a five hundred one c three, so everything can be a write off for the U.S. taxes if they make a donation as well. And that kind of leads me to the other thing we've talked about online is we often dedicate this, uh, all these events to Tom. Yeah. So, and it's, it's that thing of, I think, you know, cause I remember when you, you sent me that, I was, I was thinking, Oh, I know the estate is quite, yes. They're quite rigid about certain things, but I think that when you're doing it in, in honor of yes Tom Petty and you're not sort of saying it's, you know, you're making very clear that it's not through the estate, but have Absolutely. you butted up against that at all? I mean, and if this is sort of sensitive, we can take it. No, no. You know what? Uh, and I, I love and respect the fact that you're always very much, we don't have the rights to the music. We're nothing to do with the estate. I'm completely the same way. This is just yeah. a guy who loves Tom Petty, puts up a sign and says, listen, I know he gave back to, um, you know, to homeless organizations at Midnight Mission in yep. Los Angeles. And he gave back very quietly to a lot of charities. So he was philanthropic. So that was kind of my inspiration to why we should do the same thing. So we, and it's funny, I put up a sign just by the desk when people come through and just say it's dedicated to him. Tons of people go, he's the guy, the reason I'm in music, love him. He's the best, fantastic. And that's that's very rewarding as well. Even Mike has a uh, a foundation for Tazzy for dogs as well. Yep. So they're, they're good guys who give back as well. Isn't it funny though, I mean, you don't, I've never heard anyone, and I don't know of many people who have heard anyone say, Tom Petty, oh, I hate Tom Petty. You'll get people who don't really love yeah. him like we do, or people who yeah. are not that familiar with him, but you never hear anyone say, that guy sucks. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think it's that uh, there's there's something he gave off, and it was on stage. You could see he was appreciative. He was humble. I think he never forgot where he came from. And as I mentioned, he gave back. And those are all the qualities that, you know, we as human beings appreciate from each other. Yeah. Very respectful guy.
Well, and you saw him, I was looking through the, going back through the notes when, you know, the offline conversation we had, and you saw him at two of the Fillmore shows, because one of the questions yeah. I always ask is, if you could go back and watch any show, which one would you go to? And I'm going to ask you later, but a lot of people say the Fillmore. Yeah, I caught two out of the 20 uh, shows there, but oh. you know what? I got to tell you, I was uh, Bo Diddley was one of the openers oh. one night, and Bo Diddley was walking around the Fillmore, talking to people <laughs> and shaking hands, like Mister Diddley. <laughs> oh like, my! What Lord. do you say to Bo Diddley? You don't say yeah. thank you, right? That's that's about it. And yeah. Tom, of course, was super respectful about having Bo Diddley open for him. And that was another thing you got from from Tom on stage. It was very sincere as well. I mean, I was also at some Fonda shows that blew my mind. Uh, the Petty oh. Dillon show. I always tell the one time I, you know, spent a lot of time in San Diego so I could drive up to LA to see the shows. This is the the mind blower. And thank God there's a bootleg of this out there because people would not believe me when I tell this story. So we went up and saw him. Lenny Kravitz opens for him. After the (laughs) show, uh, Bob Dylan comes out, Annie Lennox, Dave Stewart, Bruce Springsteen, and then Lenny came back on stage as well for all to play. John Fogarty was there as well. And they all came on stage. I mean, we're just looking at each other like, are you kidding me? This is the lottery winning night. This is a Hall of Fame. Yeah. Right on stage, right in front of us. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. It was crazy. And they were they were playing together and it was it was phenomenal. Was that the one where cause there's you said like there's the time and Dylan sort of is walking off stage and the heartbreak is obviously playing and he, he goes off and he says, There was a time when you could turn the radio on and hear a real song from a real band. This Different is a band tour. that like doing this is like yeah. a band that doing real music and then yes, walks off stage. Yes. How Dylan is that though, right? I know that is so Dylan. <laughs> there was a time you could yeah. And it was yeah. it was fantastic. And it was kind of half walking off as he said it with a microphone. So it was it was fantastic. And then the, the band just kicked into the next song and it was it was great. That, that was a separate tour. That was the okay. uh confessions, true confessions tour. Yeah. As well, versus I think the one I saw with uh with Lenny was probably in the mid eighties, but uh, that was the one after, I think, right. It was yes, one of the, when they did yes, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was great. You know, and I must've seen Stevie Nicks with him probably just cause there were so many in quantity, probably a dozen times where she came out wow. and did insider. And of course, stop dragging my heart around. And then she just sang back up for a while. Yeah. Cause there are no girls in the heartbreakers. There are no <laughs> girls in the band, but I love the, there's two things about that that I always love is one is that Tom never did insider with anyone else. Yes which a lot of artists would do. They would just, you know, they could have any sort of female artist could come out and sing that. Yeah. You know, you get, what's her name? Um, Ann Wilson from, from Horace. Right. There's lots of great people pipes. could do that. Great yeah. pipes, great singer. But it's Tom and Stevie and their yeah. voices together are just special. And yes. then the other thing is Stevie Nicks was by the time she did Insider a huge international star through yes. Fleetwood Mac and then in her own right. But yes. she'll still stand on stage in the wings and just yes. sing background vocals of the heartbreak. Because I think that, that that says a lot about their their character of those two people. Yeah, those early days with uh, her hiding from with Jimmy, Jimmy's place from Tom are very, very funny stories as well. So, no, she was absolutely, you know, the additional heartbreaker who could never get in. Uh, And I love she still dedicates a, you know, a song to him. And she did with Fleetwood Mac and when Mike was in the band. So clearly there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of good relationships there. When it's that thing that you find, obviously, now that you hang around with musicians a lot, you know, even these sort of you can get with, to this level with Fleetwood Mac and and, and Stevie Nicks and, and Tom Hardy and the Heartbreakers yeah. and and John Tate and and Jackson Brown all these bands but they're they're first and foremost and certainly the one the musicians are like the musicians it's the music they care about the music they love so they don't really have an ego if you can play right come, come and join us let's yeah let's jam it out let's come and yes. play and it's yeah. just that party atmosphere so I was gonna say like as a band. You've seen the Heartbreakers, you know, from 79 through to, I'm sure you saw the 40th anniversary tour. Twice on the last tour. Yeah. Yeah. So you've seen this band evolve and grow. And it's something Tom was always proud of. And of course, we're getting the Mojo stuff trickling out now. I think we're getting, I think we're getting a documentary. I think we're getting a full length documentary. Um, But that band grew. And as just as a, a set of musicians and as a collective, I think that that, you know, they always said the Fillmore was the height of it. And to be able to pull out, you know, Two new Bo Diddley songs that they'd never played before. Soundcheck them, go out and play them. Right. Well, first, first of all, you need to be good at your instruments. But second of all, you kind of need Ben Montench in your band, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> we always talk about that too. It's one of those ones though, that your questions. I'm always like, man, it's you, you love Mike Campbell, and he's always going to be your first choice. But if you've seen him, like I said, uh, you know, as many times as I've seen him. And by the way, I always tell this to people. I go, obviously, I'm not subjective about the band. We'll, we'll be yeah. honest. But I have never, never seen them be sloppy or phone in a show. Yeah. And that has always blown my mind, that they never, never phoned it in or took it easy. They were always professional. I, I think that was Tom was probably somewhat of a taskmaster yeah. on that one as well. And again, you've got you got Ben Mott, and I know the, the great story about like, 
he was the only one who could go along with Bob Dylan, who does, you know, key changes and obscure songs, not tell him. And they'd look over to him for the lead. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a terrific testament to to uh, Benmont. I also love the fact that Benmont's family was a bunch of judges and he could have gone on to law school and been a, an established, but thank yeah. God Tom talked him out of it, right? Because I always say nobody adds more to a song than Benmont. And those times I saw him at the Fonda or the Wiltern, the guy could just add another yeah. level of, of song and nuance. And again, that's somebody who's not really a musician, but it, that's not even lost on an amateur, how much he but added. It's why... Full Moon Fever and Highway Companion don't sound like Heartbreakers records. Yes. It's because Benmont's not on it. Well, Wildflowers does because he is, yeah. and that sounds more like a really Wildflowers. It is a Heartbreakers record in all but yeah. name, but that's why those two records don't sound anything like it because Benmont has a certain thing that he always brings to those records. And then the other thing I love about him too is, well, all three of them, you know, the three, so the three-headed beast, when yeah. you listen to them and listen to them speak, none of them went to college. Yes. None of them sort of had further education, but they're all extraordinarily intelligent, yes. well-read, very articulate human beings. And yes. that sort of... And they're also, I think they have a great sense of humor. You also oh, oh, notice absolutely. that. absolutely. Yeah. To the whole thing. They're all good hangs and they're yeah. friends as well. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the, the Benmont thing. I mean, I, I, I go back to Refugee and I go, isn't that really a guitar lead that he is doing without, I don't know if it's a Hammond B3 organ or what it is, but yeah. it's like, he takes it over and that's the lead versus, you got Mike yeah. Campbell in the band. How is that not an automatic... <laughs> No, nice try, but I'm sorry, we've got Mike Campbell. There's yeah. no other conversation going on here. But also Mike just letting the, you know, okay, I know I could I could shred here. That's okay. But Ben Monson, and I was listening to, I don't know if you've been seeing the, the Mojo interviews they've been putting yes. out. They've, so that the one that Ben Mont was saying that it's knowing when you when you play with each other, and they were talking about Mojo because they play without headphones on, yeah. you really have to listen to what the other person's playing so that when you can recognize, oh, he's going to he's gonna play a fill or he's going to do something here, I just need to back off now. Yeah. And a lot of bands... Yeah bands don't have that it isn't a common thing to be able to do it that spontaneously right i, I think time probably helps with that of not of uh, i've got to get my piece in i'm young i've got an ego blah yep. blah blah they seem to set that aside to make the music come first and that's that's clear from from all the albums as well that was the priority but like you said too though that that was set early on because tom always yeah. was the band leader you know that's the buck stops here We're, we'll be democratic when it comes to yeah. putting the arrangements together but i got a final say it's my yeah. name on the, it's my name on the can. The ingredients right. are going to be good in there, right? So, right. yeah, I, I, I go back a little bit because I'm thinking of those early, early shows in the late '70s and early '80s, and that energy level and that jumping is just something that yeah. obviously all of us lose over time. But <laughs> I don't think people knew, and I, I think you know those other bands I mentioned, it was still that vibe of punk rock ending but you still got to sell. This is still a business and you need to be energetic and you need to have energy. And I think you had it naturally, but I'm just yeah. saying it was, again, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones. <laughs> Not that the Ramones move much, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's very much a different time of time of, uh, time of of music as well. Yeah, the, shoe, the shoegazing thing. I think they started <laughs> it, right? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So yeah. then, okay, so you've, you've, what, is there anywhere... Any venue, because we'll get into 10, 10 questions much later, but we've got lots to talk about. But yeah. was there any venue you never got to see Tom in that you kind of think, oh, man, I really kind of wish that I really kind of wish I'd seen him at Red Rocks or, or you know, Madison Square Garden? Or I think I saw him four times at Red Rocks. <laughs> so that one's off the limits. <laughs> that's that's second on my bucket list. But, and then the last to... time I think I mentioned it in one of your uh, one of your Facebook posts was yeah. Joe Cocker opening for him on the Mojo Tour. Um, and that that was terrific as well. That was the very last time at uh, at Red Rocks. But you know, yeah. I also on my list, I never saw him at Madison Square Garden. Much like I know that's one of your bucket list items. Yeah. That would be on mine. Uh, the Gorge up in Washington, I always hear is a fantastic venue. And then probably in the UK, um, I I probably love to see him uh, somewhere in the UK as well. So those are kind of my my yeah. bucket list. But, but you know, I'm spoiled. I, I got to see plenty. Yeah, <laughs> well, like Palladium would be a great venue too, yes. just because the acoustics in that room. Oh, yeah, God, I mean. Because someone was saying the other day about like the Fillmore isn't a great venue. Like it's no. it's just like a little square boxy kind of room. But yeah, when you get those venues where you sort of have that weight of history in there, yeah, there is something just a little bit special because I think it just changes it changes the mood of the audience. Yes. And so that and, and you know energizes you. And of course that's gonna feed up to the band, that's gonna feed back. Yeah. So there is something about those venues, like the whiskey and like the Fillmore and like the cavern would have been in, in Liverpool, right? Where right. the room doesn't have to be great. It's the same with yeah. studios. 
I mean, they recorded for me in favor in Mike's garage. You don't need a multi-million dollar studio to make something that sounds good. So yeah, that's true. And yeah, you know, I think one of my favorite small venues I saw him in was the the Fonda Theater in Los Angeles, which is yeah. very, very small. Probably the smallest venue I ever saw them in uh, you know, over the 40 years that I that I was a fan and and followed them around. But uh that one was great. And again, uh Fillmore is special no matter what. Uh, it, it still is, you know, those chandeliers. And when you walk on yeah. that floor and the Bill Graham history and all the bands there, it, it's a terrific spot. And that, that buzz in the crowd, I, I saw the Dirty Knobs there not too long ago. Oh, nice. uh, and they were fantastic. And even uh, Marcy, Mike's wife, comes out and does that introduction. Yeah. And it's, 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 still, it's still moving. The crowd just goes bananas as well. And Mike kills it. I mean, that band rocks. Yeah, they're a great band. I was going to ask you if you've seen them. So did you see Mudcrutch as well? Or Yes, I saw yeah. Mudcrutch twice and the Dirty Knobs twice. So just in terms of that, then, because this is a question I've never asked, and I've had two people on who've seen him lots, but did you notice a difference? Was there a difference in sort of how relaxed they were or their sort of performance when they were playing a smaller venue versus a big sort of big arena or a big outdoor thing? Was it Was it different? Yeah, it was. I think the most casual and relaxed I saw Tom over the 40 plus years that I saw them was a mud crutch show in Oakland at the Fox Theater. And it's where he's back. Other people are taking the lead songs yeah. a lot. So that that one, it, it makes sense to me. Um, and he was very, he was laughing. I've never seen him that relaxed in my entire life is when he was with mud crutch at that, that last tour. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, there's a different thing. There's much more conversation going on in a small venue like the Fillmore, which yeah. is reflected in that album um, than it was an arena tour. And I think for the obvious reasons of hello, Cincinnati, you know, when there's yeah. 18,000 people there, uh, it is a much different animal. And you've got to, you know, and again, I think they play more hits in those kind of places. And it's first time for a lot of people. And yeah. Tom was, uh, I think when they did that set list, it was everybody got blown away because they had those songs down and you got yeah. maybe a two, three song variance per night on a tour as yeah. well. And it may be, you know, the last couple of songs they play different. They had those down too, but it was not a big variance. So I think that was the arena setting as well. You think about the pressure of that. So I often think about that with, with a big artist like Petty or Springsteen or Dylan, whatever it is, you're always going to leave someone not having heard their favorite song. Right. Or not having heard three or four songs where they think, oh, man, I really wish they'd done. Because at some point, you're going to have to leave out The Waiting. Yes. Or you're going to have to leave out Learning to Fly. Or you're going to have yeah. to leave out, you know, I don't know, It's Good to Be King. Or any number of songs that people yes. kind of want to hear. So that pressure to do that to me is insane, which is, again, I always go back to Fillmore. And the box set that we got is, yes, it's just, I think it's the best rock and roll document that's ever been released, honestly. It's Because it shows the full breadth of a band who are completely unconstrained, really. And they're going to play, of course, like you said, the core 10 or 12 songs they did on that run. But it shows how good a band can actually be. You know, and the, so. the genres of music they cover in that, uh, I think, is oh my God, as I mean, well, right? From an acoustic to a 50s rocker to whatever they wanted to do. Uh, I don't know if you, do you have the Blue Stingrays uh, album, the, the side one of Mike's surf music as yep. well. <laughs> There's surf music in there on yeah. some nights. So it was just, that was a true excitement. When you're outside getting in to go into that line, it's like, what fantastic <laughs> jam are we going to get tonight? Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the best feeling in the world, um, especially for a fan like me who saw him so many times because I would see the tour several times obviously if i got to almost 40 shows and even those three or four nuances of different nights would be exciting to me so that was the the lottery how i didn't just move in and, and camp out front i don't know but it was a different time wouldn't it be interesting to find out if there was anyone who actually went to all 20 dates i'm sure there must have been one or two who there must have been yeah would have been absolutely. so much fun but but you could also see you know mike and tom must have been like that guy was here last and that guy's been here all i think i got stalking me security <laughs> so, so. that's a roadie he's ours <laughs> Oh, God, can you imagine being a roadie for Tom Petty? Oh. No, that was always a, a dream. Absolutely. Yeah. Love to do that one. I, I, you probably don't make enough money to make a true living. But uh, it, it. But I have to go back and tell you, you mentioned something about the health care. I go, I just want to let everybody know listening. We absolutely take care of the roadies. We take care of the catering staff. We take care of everybody because we know everybody needs optical care. Yeah. Um, there was one time we were doing the Vans Warp Tour, and there's a lot of up and coming bands there that we worked at a venue. And we had somebody come with a pretty well-known band and he had um, some readers and he was telling me he goes I'm having trouble seeing distance in the road and then getting the speedometer thing and the guy had a pair of readers those little cheap ones you buy and one right. thing was one lens was missing and I go you probably have three hundred thousand dollars in guitars you've got another five hundred thousand in equipment and they're letting you get on the road 
in this condition. <laughs> so I That's gave crazy. the guy like I go, here's four pairs of glasses that are going to fix your problems. Take these and go. And it was the Vans Warped Tour, so he gave me like six pairs of tennis shoes to, to for payment. <laughs> so I got a bunch of Vans tennis shoes That's as because so he was funny. so happy and so yeah. elated right and that's what makes that whole thing worth it i'm sorry to get off track there no 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 not at all this is this is exactly this right we had to, i wanted to have you on you know because we were talking again i find you very humble and oh, i'm not really i don't know if i'll be very interested or i don't know if i'm no no this is i want to talk to fans and you're a huge fan but i also wanted to talk about the work that you're doing because it is massively important and it thank you it's that thing of you know music makes people's lives better yes but it's the Maslow's hierarchy, right? You need to be able yes. to see, you need to be able to have shelter and all those things right. have to be taken Food care comes of first. Yeah, absolutely. before you can appreciate art. So yes. you're doing, you're doing phenomenal work. <laughs> Thank you. So do you remember, so Damn the Torpedoes was the first album then that was kind of the first drop. Do you remember, was there a, was there a point at which you sort of thought, oh, I don't know, are they kind of having a wobble here or are they, are they, are they sort of phasing out now? Cause obviously around sort of full moon fever, there were questions around, even in the band about whether Tom was going to sort of break up the heartbreaks and go alone. Was there ever yeah. a period where you sort of drifted for even for a sort of a moment or were you always just locked into everything Tom was doing? Um, you know, I was pretty much locked into everything. Um, I was definitely still on with Southern accents because, you know, having been born in the South, coming to California, that resonated with me as yeah. well. Um, having lived in London, I was a Dave Stewart fan. Um, but clearly that, dichotomy of the two types of songs on there like i've got a theme but i don't really have a theme how is yeah. the guy from crouch end in london gonna get me through my gainesville <laughs> roots right i mean it's, it's it's crazy to think that's what happened so certainly some ups and downs over time like anything but never abandoned always a defender uh, of tom and you know i know he had the time of hitting the wall the drug use all those things those were yeah. kind of evident but we didn't have the social media at the time to know what was going on and why things were what they were as well so in the fire right another big incident yeah. in in his development as well uh, i'm trying to think of um yeah you know, there's some albums i don't like as much as other albums absolutely that's just you know the way things are and that's always going to be the same and i've heard it's, it's crazy because you know on tom petty nation or you're in the facebook groups and you hear people saying oh yeah mojo just never yeah never landed for me or the last dj and like are you kidding me mojo <laughs> Well, just one of the best rock and roll records ever recorded, man. I mean, I, yeah, but as a fly on the wall, like if any album to be in the room for, I think I might even pick that one over Wildflowers, yeah, just to see the process of it, just to see them see those songs grow so organically, yeah. But you know, the just... idea of uh, being on the in Malibu with Rick Rubin in the trailer is pretty good oh. to be a hang for, for Wildflowers as well, you know, yeah, it of would course. be interesting to see. Um, but no, no, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on the mojo. And, you know, even when you and Matt were talking the other day about Echo, I popped that back on. I'm like, damn it, they're right. That is oh. fantastic. But again, it's such a catalog. You do go and rediscover things. Yeah. And that's one of the things I absolutely uh, love and adore about Tom is he literally can take you from being a 16 year old to being somebody near the end of life where you've got lullabies songs of it's all right for now to yeah. just a riff. You thought, how is that not written in 2020? Right. This, he wrote yeah. this brand new guitar riff um, it, that, so it's a lifetime again, soundtrack of your life, cliche, kind of, kind of true in this case where he takes you from, from both ends. And then, and I do know, and I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, this is the place to appreciate somebody like Mike, but his songwriting, uh, his riffs, how much he was involved in a lot of the hits. Yeah. I don't think the common man knows. I think the, you know, Tom Petty project people know, but I don't think the rest of the world knows. So I'm always kind of a big advocate. Not that Mike needs any help from me, yeah. but I'm just saying, I don't think people appreciate the co-captain's spot in the history of the band. Absolutely. And it's that thing that, you know, I mean, even beyond, you know, he writes Refugee or he writes The Riff for Free Girl Now or You Wreck Me and he comes in and Tom knows how to work with those things. But it's all the other things he did as well. Like, it'll all work out. Yes. You know, from Let Me Up, that, which is, again, doing this podcast has really given me a much deeper love of a lot of songs that I'd sort of yes. either missed or forgotten about or underappreciated. But yeah. Tom gives It'll All Work Out to Mike and says, look, can you just, can you make this a song? Because I just can't deal with this right now. Right. Gives him the chords and Mike goes away and creates this unbelievable yeah, piece of music that Tom says they no one else touches. Essentially, that's Mike Campbell start to finish on on the on the instrumentation on that track, or something like you know what I just did a couple of weeks ago, um, Dark of the Sun. Yes, that guitar solo is it's just mind blowing, it and it's so simple, and it's not like running down a dream, and it's not this big shreddy thing that you know a lot of kids these days. Oh, that's not well, it's not a very interesting guitar solo. But right. What he's doing in there, yeah. Mike Campbell's such a genius of of a, of a technical guitarist, of a field guitarist, and just. He just knows what to play, right? And that's that thing, like you said, him and Tom getting together. Yeah. 
I'm not a, I'm not a spiritual person. I don't believe in karma or anything, but there's, there's something that Absolutely. they were meant to be together, you know? Absolutely. Meant to be. Yeah, this yeah. built to last. We'll call that uh, <laughs> other album title as well. Another great song with a great bass line. Um, but, I, I, you know, one of my favorite things is when you when you get on the Mike Campbell bandwagon and people are probably, a lot of people can't name who the lead guitarist is for Tom yeah. Petty, but they've enjoyed so many of his solos is hearing musicians. I, I think one of my favorites was a lead guitarist from Bad Religion. And you're like, well, that's a, a punk, a good punk band but they're a punk band and his thing was he goes my goal is to do what mike campbell does he goes play the minimum amount to add to the song and not be a showboat and yeah. do what is right for the music as well and i thought that's funny as punk rock guys appreciating uh you know kind of a mainstream rock and roll person thing but there's yeah. fifty thousand musicians out there that go i get what he's doing and it's easy to say but you want to be eddie van halen when you don't need to be right well, and it's funny that, you know, people, you get this all the time too with musicians when you, you, you're talking to a musician, you're interviewing or, you know, chatting, well, who are your influences? And they go through and it's like, well, you know, people think, well, that doesn't sound anything like what you do. <laughs> well, no, but the, the Beatles don't sound like anything like Metallica yeah. or, you know, or Queen or and right. Queen doesn't sound anything like this band and that band, but Lady Gaga. Yeah. But influence doesn't mean that I want to sound like that. It just means that it feeds into... Yeah, what you're doing the same way that any sort of art does, any sort of any writers, you know, you, they, they, they might listen, they might read, um, I don't know, Mark Twain, yeah. but Stephen King doesn't write anything like Mark Twain, right? So you know, it's that thing of influences. I know it's yeah, absolutely yeah. right, very true. Yeah. So moving on, so we have we've, we've done Mojo, we've covered some film more stuff. Um, has there been a is this is there sort of a, an era that hasn't been tapped back into yet because obviously we've got the film more we got the wildflowers and all the rest mm -hmm. we've got some we've got more mojo now we've got that kind of the three extra tracks that we got from mojo is there anything else that you're thinking man i'd love to hear what this was what, yeah what, yeah was i a... think uh i'm sure you know the, is it the old gray whistle stop that that kind of uh was that the name of that um... old gray whistle test yeah, yeah. old gray whistle test thank yeah. you i think because i came on board in 79 and of course i went and immediately bought the back catalog and got through everything at, at that time period I would love to know because I saw them right when they went to arenas. That was right. it. The high energy. We're finally filling up a big room. This is the dream. I'd kind of like to get a little bit more. And I don't know if it's available or if the memories are there. But that that time period where they were making it in England because they had to go there to, to get a little more successful before they popped in the U.S. Yeah. And I wonder what that time was like when they were thrown in with all these new wave bands. And I'd love to know, like, hey, do we plow on or this is the right path? Do yeah. we stop? Where Where's their head at at that time period before that first wave of, I mean, massive success, right? When yeah. you're selling out arenas around the world on the Damn the Torpedoes album, right before that time period, I, I, I would love to know what was in their heads and what was going on. Well, that that's the that's the the biopic that you'd want to see, right? That's yeah. if, the, if you're going to do a Tom Petty sort of bio, you yeah. want the early years mud crutch up to, probably up to Damn the Torpedoes breaking yes. is, what's, is what's most interesting. Because like you said, that's the... That's the sketch that isn't colored in for us yet. We, we yes. don't have as much information about what was going on back then. Because, you know, and equally, though, that show at the Whiskey, their, their debut at the Whiskey. Yes. That's in this, yeah, in my mind, yeah. Opening for Blondie, who were also a debuting. And there is a video of that night of Blondie singing. I can't remember which one it is now. So someone yeah. at that gig had a camera. Right. So you right. just think, you just think, I wonder if someone's, if that's sitting in someone's closet somewhere. And one yeah. day someone's kid is going to find it and go, what the hell is this? Blondie, Heartbreakers, puts it in and thinks, oh, we might be able to sell this. You reminded me of another story, and I don't know if uh, you or the, the, the listeners know this one. So uh, they were opening, uh, they were working with Blondie on tour, and Tom was like, boy, I really like that part in Rapture where she just raps through, because that was the first mainstream rap song. Right. Um, and he took that, and Here Comes My Girl came out of it. Right. Now, yeah. I don't think a lot of people know that, that he took that because that's got a lot of rap thing. And I saw him open for the Georgia Satellites one time. I don't know if you remember them. They were kind of a marginal, successful uh, band from the South as well. And they yeah. were opening uh, opening for Tom as well. And during that tour, he said, we have not played Here Comes My Girl. He goes in probably I don't know 10 or 15 years. So this is probably the mid to late 80s. And he said um, he goes. We played it, and he goes, and I noticed there were a lot of guys in the audience and girls that were starting to hug, hold hands, touch each other. It's back in the set list, people. <laughs> Why not? I mean, that's like I said, I was talking to, again, talking to someone, a, a show is yeah. a contract between yes. 
there's people on stage and the people in the audience, and you both got to hold your end up. Yes. And if you're reacting to that, of course, the man's going to go, yeah, well, let's play this again because that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. You know? Look, so. look what I'm seeing among 18,000 people that I'm I'm catching are suddenly getting romantic and realizing why they're in love again. But you, you mentioned that laundry list of songs from Dan the Turbine. That's the kind of thing that gets cut out. Yeah. And you're like, how does that get cut out? Well, it has to get cut out. I don't know what to tell you. There's too much material. Well, and too much material that works live as well. That's the other yes. thing. Because, you know, there's lots of, I mean, I'm a huge Pete Gabriel fan. I'm a huge Genesis fan. There were songs in their catalogs that, well, Gabriel probably can do it. But you're like, well, there's some yeah. songs you probably queen. You know, there's tons yeah. of songs in the Queen Castle that you just can't do those things live on stage. Yeah. Where the Heartbreakers, Tom wrote so many great live songs. Yeah. Is there a song then that you never saw that you really wished that you've seen live. And I know I'm giving you questions off the cuff that you haven't thought about yet. <laughs> but uh, I'm just kind of curious. Am, like, again, just someone, as someone who's seen a million shows, I'm yeah. just curious if this, oh man, I really wish they'd done, you know, how many more days or, or something like that. I'm trying to think what I've uh, missed out on. Um, I would probably have to do a little bit more homework on yeah, that. Yeah. Because there's been so many shows, but I'm sure there is. You know, one that I uh, I talk about that, uh, it, it's actually one of the 10 questions we'll get to later, but um, Stranger in the Night was always on the first three or four tours. Yeah. And that was a creepy, good rock and roll song <laughs> that got dropped. And I don't think I heard it after probably 1985 or something like that. And uh, I saw, um, and uh, from the first two albums, and... Um, and I saw the Long After Dark tour, and that's about when they stopped playing that because they had that three album run of the waiting. You know, good luck. Get, yeah. Good luck getting anything in from the first two besides 100%. Breakdown. And Breakdown disappeared for a long time as well. And things like that tend to come back when they finally pop up 10, 12. And again, I'm talking about a 40 year journey for yeah. me seeing them is um they tend to be reconfigured and fantastic to hear again live. And we're so hungry for it because, right, a lot of people go, well, of course, I'm going to hear Breakdown tonight. And like you said, you don't get yeah. everything you want, right? There's just not possible. I wonder if, I'm just thinking about Stranger Than the Night because you've said that now and I'm kind of curious. I'm going to quickly look here, Mark. Uh, Setlist FM? Yeah, they, they played it up to 83 on and off, but I mean, not much. And then they played it a couple of times in 2003, but I wonder just with the lyrical content of that song and Absolutely. whether that's just like, it's being self-conscious about, look, we know that we're, this isn't a racist song and this is not, yes. we're not speaking, we're, this is in character. We're yeah, speaking in character, that's exactly but right. it's difficult to get that nuance across. I was on a conversation with with someone about this. It's same with, um, you know, Money for Nothing by the Ice Straits. Yes. There's all these songs where they're sung from character, but in a, in a three and a half minute pop song, it's difficult to really sort of build character and build context where if it's a movie, because, you know, the, the parallel is American History X, which yes. is about a racist and has lots of racist language in it. Yes. But you've got more time to flesh that out and contextualize it. So I think that possibly that might have played into it. I think that's very much like the Confederate flag disappearing. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's analogous to that as well. So, you know, he was he had some he had a lot of integrity and conscious and was, was a thoughtful person. So you don't write like that not being thoughtful. Oh, God, no. I mean, yeah, his lyrics are... Yeah. Again, I mean, that was the other thing that once I once I fell in love with Petty, and it was it was sort of Wildflowers was really the that was the album that was like, oh wait a minute, this is not just Refugee, and it's not, yeah. you know, Here Comes My Girl is as brilliant as that song is. There's yeah. there's a depth to Wildflowers that goes up beyond anything he really ever I think ever yeah. did any ended. But so when you get into there, it was it was the lyrics, some of the stuff in the writing in there because I'm a words guy, I like words. Yeah. Although you wouldn't think it, knowing that I'm fumbling my way through this conversation, but. Just no, I think that's why you appreciate Matt too. Matt's also a very good lyricist as well as being a good guitarist as yeah. well. And for somebody that age, it's even more mind blowing. That's the thing. Him and Jake Thistle both, you think, yeah. who are you? Like what? <laughs> There's an old man you... in there. Let the old man out. <laughs> yeah. Cause it takes, it took me a long time before I had any wisdom at all. I was an idiot for a lot of years. You know. <laughs> and, the, and the wildfires, that's a nice starter kit for you. It kind of reminds me of the yeah. Rick Rubin. He goes, how is one guy writing this many good songs? Yeah. What is going on? <laughs> right. And think about who he's worked with, right? Yeah. From the Beastie Boys on. So when he comes, I always find that one funny too, because Ruben's younger than Petty when he comes in to yeah. produce him yes. and doesn't have a background of uh, producing rock and roll records. Of course, producing music is producing music. Yes. You just listen to the song and if you've got that ear for it. But still, like yeah. you said, the, the Beastie Boys guy is yeah. going to do Tom Petty. Who started out as his New York and New York uh, University NYU a dorm room started yep. his business, which is crazy. And then you know he's he's got the other one too. He goes, I always make it for myself first, and then I know it will be good, right? Versus yeah. Jimmy Iovine's, I'm going to make a hit here, and yeah. they both were successful, right? Different different ways to get there. But it's another thing that Tom did, where we were talking earlier about you know have, having the good sense to latch onto things, opportunities when they came along, where they needed Iovine. 
in yes. that period. They needed someone to teach them how to make records in the studio. Yeah. He needed Rick Rubin to get Wildflowers out properly because Iovine could not have made that record. No, it would have been it would have been a disaster. Too delicate. Jeff Lynn couldn't have. I don't think Jeff Lynn would have produced Wildflowers properly because no. it would have been too produced. Right. Rick Rubin was exactly the right guy at exactly the right time. And the same thing, a three album arc. You get yes. three with Rubin, three with Iovine, three yeah. with Jeff Lynn. Those those little triplets come along, right? So yeah, no, absolutely. Which is your, so there's a question for you then, which if you had to pick, because we're going to pick a favorite album later, but yes. if you had to pick a three pack, which, which do, do you go with Iovine's three pack, Ruben's three pack, or Jeff Lynn's three pack? And of course, it's Jeff best, Lynn, two of them are solo. Yeah, but. It, it, it's the best child thing, but I'm going to go with Jimmy's uh, three as well. And I think right. it's part of it because it's my birth spot with Tom is yeah. probably in there as well. And again, I, I totally admit I'm not uh, objective, but that's my, my choice. <laughs> And they sound so good, those records. And again, I always, like I said, I think of all the trilogies, that's the one where it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it really is a three album set and they all go together. You can play them one after the other and they grow. They definitely sort of, they grow and they build, but yeah. they sound like siblings. They, you know, they sound like they go together. Yes. But of course they were recording. You, you were talking earlier about, you know, we're old enough to remember when artists recorded it. They put out an album a year, sometimes two. Yes. And then they went on to tour. So there was none of this sort of sitting around, over deliberating on things for five years and trying to get yeah. the right get on your know, guns and roses spending 10 years and they get Chinese democracy is what you get after 10 years. Oh my God, you know, okay. Well, Hey Mark, thanks so, 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 so much for taking the time. We've been sort of getting, trying to get this organized for a little while now. So I'm glad yes. we managed to find the time to sit down. Um, Me too. Thanks for listening to like, I, I do, like I said, I always, I always want to make sure that people know that I am sincere when I say thank you for listening to anything I ever say because this was a passion project for me. So finding this community of people, of amazing people who are not just musicians and not just, you know, producers or fans or whatever. But now we've got someone who's doing the amazing work that you're doing, um, making sure that artists get the supports that they need um, at a time when they're probably struggling, especially coming out of the pandemic. Um, please tell us again one last time where people can find um, information about the program that you run and where can right. they find you? Our website is sightandsoundcare.org. Sight and the and is A-N-D, so sightandsoundcare.org. We're also on Facebook under Sight and Sound Care and Instagram as well. And you can see things like my uh, Tom Petty letter. You can see the pictures from the first time I saw him in 1979 on Facebook on Tom Petty Nation as well. But if you go to sightandsoundcare.org and you want to make a donation to help people get free Healthcare, I will just mention no salaries, no income, 100% of the funds go to buying glasses and providing vision care for uh, those people we appreciate and love so much.